Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. This particular episode is a long time coming, but I'm glad we're finally here. Uh, today, uh, my guest is Jeff Tester, um, who's an expert on geothermal energy. If this is the first time you've ever listened to V-Radio, please visit my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can listen to a lot more shows like this one, including with other scientists, activists, uh, documentary filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you'll find a lot of great programming there, including my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet. If you like what you're hearing on V-Radio, please consider a donation. Um, that being said, welcome, Jeff, to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Neil. No problem. Thanks for coming on. Now, I actually learned about uh, you specifically from watching a lecture that you did, I believe, with MIT. Uh, you had a lot of great information about geothermal. Um, before we get into that, though, I mean, just to give the audience a little bit about it, um, what made you decide to get involved with alternative energy? Well, that goes way back in, in uh, my professional life, uh, back in the first oil embargo that we had in the early 1970s. And Many of us were starting to think about what we might do as engineers and wanted to have an impact and uh, certainly the attractive feature of talking about a transformed energy system that would make us less dependent on imports and uh, more uh, higher utilization of renewable energy was how I got started. And uh, it was it's a very long story, so uh, probably that's enough to say. At that point, I began to look at uh, what the energy content might be in in the upper crust of the earth and starting to think about how that had been utilized already around in different locations of the world and uh, started to ask some questions about whether that could be expanded significantly over the few isolated spots we had developed already to that point in time and that led to an interest in what is now called enhanced or, or engineered geothermal systems. Now Basically, then, I guess, you know, you kind of looked at those potentials. Would you say that uh, – was this in any way motivated as far as your concern from, like, maybe from an activist perspective, just that you wanted to do something beneficial for the Earth? Well, in part, I guess you could say that was a, the beginning of a, of a sort of a commitment on many of us to uh, taking a different path. I think we began to look at uh, issues about how much of our energy – annual consumption of energy was uh, was dependent on oil and, and other resources coming from other places. And uh, the fact that these are finite and depletable resources uh, makes you think about if you're really going to talk about a commitment to multiple generations, uh, you, you really have to start to think about what, how this would evolve. And fortunately, uh, the United States is... Uh, is very well blessed with respect to natural resources. Uh, we had already uh, gone fairly far down the path in, in utilizing other renewables such as hydro, uh, and uh, biomass was a, another area of interest for many people, uh, and of course the, the growing interest in wind and solar um, you know, got started uh, significantly during that period of time. But geothermal was always the, the sort of hidden uh, hidden potential because they didn't think of it as much because it was under the ground and they people knew about uh, about Iceland and they perhaps knew about parts of the western part of the U.S. and 
places in Italy and New Zealand and things like that that had been developing geothermal, but I don't think they ever really thought of it uh, in the same way that you think of uh, renewables such as wind and solar. So I was interested in you know, taking a, a look at how we might diversify our approach to alternative energy. And um, if you think about uh, the way in which we extract minerals uh, from the ground, we were talking about trying to mine heat uh, in a different way than, uh, uh, than we're trying to utilize the energy that's contained in the, in the wind or, or the thermal energy that's in the sun. Uh, and it, it was just intriguing to me. Uh, it, it resonated a lot with uh, the, the way I was brought up as an engineer at that point in my career. Well, that's awesome. Now, I guess uh, you know the the trip towards geothermal. Uh, first of all, let's let's ask uh, questions about the current state of geothermal. Now, uh, I've also you know kind of come to the understanding that geothermal is used quite successfully in Iceland. Uh, could you comment on that? Right. Well, actually, it, it even predates uh, the, the, the Icelanders and have been very ambitious. Let me step back a little bit and, and say, like, like hydropower in some ways, this is not a, a totally new technology. Um, the Italians, uh, for, the, for the significant portion of the last century, in the early 1900s, began producing electricity uh, from geothermally produced steam, natural steam that they had tapped out of the earth. Uh, in the Tuscany hills of, of northern Italy near Pisa. And for the first 50 years of that century, they were pretty much the only real uh, activity in, in, in the world that was making electricity. There were other areas that were using geothermal heat for heating in houses and, and, and small communities. Uh, were certainly using it for, uh, uh, for other, other purposes besides electricity. And about... The, I guess it was the mid-1950s, maybe a little bit later than that, the uh, Icelanders began to, to think about where their position was. And at that point, they were 100% dependent on imported energy resources for essentially their existence. Uh, that included all of their heat, their electric power, and their transportation fuels. Uh, and it was all fossil energy uh, in one form or another, mainly liquid hydrocarbons and, and some coal. So they decided that they would get on a different path, and uh, they had two big resources to, to, to work with. One was hydropower and the other was geothermal. And in 50 years' time, which uh, takes us to the beginning of, of the current century we're in, uh, they were already uh, 100% uh, able to produce all of their electric power with a combination of hydro and geothermal, and they were heating most of the homes uh, in the whole country. I think now the figure is about 95% or so with district heating provided by uh, warm fluids uh, from, from uh, geothermal reservoirs. So they made a total transformation uh, in a half a century, and as I think about Iceland, you know, that's sort of what we might want to consider we would have to do uh, in roughly the same period of time, if we wanted to become independent uh, and uh, independent of foreign uh, oil, uh, reduce our consumption of depletable resources in general, uh, try to get away from generating a, a significant fraction of our electric power from coal. And uh, so if a small country like Iceland can do it, certainly there are other challenges for, for the United States, but it seems to me uh, we could take our portfolio of renewables, of which we have 
more to choose from than Iceland does and, and get a long way uh, down that path. So I think the Iceland example is a good one. Right, and that's actually it's it's amazing to me how ignorant most people are of that, and I don't mean that in a negative like you know sense. I'm not calling anyone stupid, but most people are not really aware of the potentials of geothermal, even as they're being um, explored now, or even being practiced now for that matter. And I definitely agree with you about the other renewables. Um, you know, we we've projected, or at least I've seen that it's projected that if we set up wind farms in the the middle of the Midwest, we could probably power the entire United States. Um, so we have so much uh, potential for solar. Solar keeps developing too. It's it's really fast. It's like I, I'm subscribed to Gizmag, and it seems like every week there's yet another innovation in solar that will allow it to be even better than it was before. Like, and I talked to a guy who installs solar systems. He told me that it's it's happening so fast that the industry can't even keep up because, you know, there's always a new thing around the corner. Yep. Uh, I think the the uh, the, the different characteristics of these energy sources are important to think about. Um, the progress that's being made in solar is, is quite significant, particularly photovoltaics. Uh, there also is the ability to capture a lot of solar thermal energy, which really requires a, uh, a sort of approach to building integration that we perhaps haven't adopted as much as we could in this country. Countries such as Israel and, and other locations have uh, a much more aggressive plan for for utilizing both solar thermal and uh, as well as photovoltaics but so, certainly some of the european countries have been uh, very aggressive uh, particularly germany in promoting the development of uh, the let's say the deployment of, of solar photovoltaics but the problem i think we have in in many parts of the of the U.S. as well as other other countries that are in high latitude is that in the winter months uh, the sun isn't out as as many hours and there's lots of issues with respect to scattering with clouds so you need something to complement that and to me the the beauty of uh, an integrated system where you would use solar where it was appropriate say in a home or in in some small community both the thermal and the and the uh, electric side of it would use geothermal, and uh, geothermal doesn't have to necessarily require a big installation. What I think is changing people's view of this now is the idea of geothermal heat pumps, uh, which actually use the stored energy uh, in the in the very shallow ground uh, as a ground source uh, for energy for in the wintertime and also as a sink for uh, depositing uh, <clears throat> energy in the summertime for cooling purposes that that can greatly increase the efficiency, and it's it's actually utilizing uh, a form of, of geothermal energy. But to really do this in a, a larger fashion, as the Icelanders have, we would have to change our style in which we um, bring energy into large cities or small communities, and we'd have to go to district heating, combined heat and power, uh, and that kind of thinking. Um, and certain... Uh, installations right now, a large university does this. Uh, we're certainly doing that here at Cornell, but we're now providing that energy with fossil fuel. But the transformation to use a combination of, say, geothermal and biomass uh, can be fairly easily uh, implemented uh, if you have the infrastructure in place to do it. So there's a lot of, there's sort of a, a lot of pieces to this complex story, but I think geothermal is complementary. Uh, to many parts of the of our uh, use of other renewables, and it hasn't been thought of that way. They 
think of you have to do it with wind or you have to do it with solar or you or you or it just isn't going to work and I don't think that's the the best approach I think an integrated approach where we use the best attributes of each resource in each region of the country uh, makes more sense now one of the things and I, I totally agree with you and actually a lot of the, my listeners you know they're familiar with the Venus project and the Venus project actually advocates the idea that it should all be location driven and that there are many different options that could be utilized uh, to kind of get the world off the grid uh, that don't pollute, that aren't dangerous. And um, it, one of the things about you know geothermal that I think actually, let me just kind of leave this open to you. You're the expert. Um, if there were any common misconceptions about geothermal energy uh, that you would like to you know to have people to, to know differently about, what would they be? Well, I think the first is that people tend to think that it's it's too localized you know it, it's nature has only been kind to a few parts of the world where it's put all the ingredients in one place high temperatures that are shallow the presence of of pressurized water or steam that can be uh, easily extracted from by drilling wells into it and uh, a large reservoir that can provide hot water or steam for long periods of time because to drill wells and to put in the infrastructure of a district heating or power plant is quite expensive so the capital expenditure is high so it has to last for a while and I think the common perception is well that's great if you happen to have it if you live in Reykjavik or if you're in certain parts of, of California or New Zealand or perhaps the Tuscany hills of Italy but it's not for everyone and uh, so I think there's a perception that is just too small to make a difference uh, and therefore you know, shouldn't be part of a national strategy if we're going to go to that route. Well, I gave you one example of, I think, where that's changing to some degree with respect to how people perceive of it because they can easily install uh, in, in new construction a geothermal uh, heat pump system, which is highly efficient. It gets them to think about using the earth itself as an energy source and sink. Uh, but what what I think it really takes is a, a kind of a different mentality. You know, it's to me, it's somewhat strange. We we drill a lot of holes into the surface of the earth to, to extract natural gas and oil, and that's exactly, you know, a similar approach in a sense, but with geothermal, except we're using a resource that actually recharges itself almost continuously uh, due to the conduction and production of, of heat as it comes up from, uh, from the lower parts of, of the earth's crust. So I, I, I guess I, I have a hard time... Uh, uh, explaining this to some people because they say, gee, why aren't we using more of it? Well, it's a combination of the um, the cost of doing it. This is bigger than putting in a wind farm or something like that. It's certainly different than installing uh, photovoltaic collectors on the roof of your house or a solar thermal system. But it's also a lot smaller in scale than a major coal-fired power plant or certainly than a, than a nuclear power plant. So it kind of fits into this space in between uh, very large baseload power and very distributed individual home or small community uh, power and electricity or heat and electricity. And yet it seems to be forgotten uh, in, in many areas of the country because they don't have all those natural uh, attributes. So when I mentioned about being interested in uh, the so-called engineered or enhanced geothermal systems, what we're attempting to do with this is to sort of change the paradigm of how you perceive geothermal. 
you don't need all of the ingredients that that nature has provided in these uh, these very isolated regions. You really just need to drill deep enough to get to the rock temperatures that would be of of value for either producing heat for homes or buildings or or producing heat that we could convert into a, a fraction of which we could convert to electricity. But we have to make the economics work. And to make the economics work, uh, we can't drill too deep because it's very expensive as you go deep. And we also have to be able to recirculate the fluids through this system so that we can have a sustainable extraction and, a, and a, in a sense, a renewable extraction of thermal energy over a long period of time to offset the investment. And that's the sort of technology that uh, the U.S. started working on some years ago and I think needs to needs to expand more. Uh, and this, I believe, would really change the the idea of what heat mining is uh, and what renewable geothermal could be for, for uh, most Americans. Now, I, everything you said there is very important. I guess uh, when you when you pointed out though that it, you know you said this is like a, a lower impact as far as uh, like you know what kind of a uh, an endeavor it is. You're saying it's easier to set up geothermal plants than it is nuclear. Is that what I got out of that? Well, I think certainly in terms of the cost, uh, I don't perceive that there would be. I mean, we have a lot of issues with public resistance to virtually anything these days. As you know, there's a there's a tendency of people to not want things in their backyard, whether they're wind turbines or a new uh, plant of some type. Certainly, there's the, the level of of concern about public acceptance of nuclear power is much higher, obviously, than it would be of renewables. But all systems require some impact. Uh, the land use, fortunately, of a of a geothermal power plant relative to uh, other types of applications, whether it's coal-fired or even a nuclear power plant, if we look at the whole life cycle, is actually pretty tiny. Uh, they, the footprint is mainly where the plant is. All of the, the, the energy extraction and conversion, if you will, uh, the extraction of the thermal energy is all underground. So you can have multiple use of the land on the surface, which is somewhat different than if you install solar collectors on the land or some things like that. So it has some you know, I think some some positive aspects to it, but it still costs a lot of money. If you build a 100 megawatt or a 50 megawatt geothermal power plant, the typical size that we have put in around the world, uh, we're still talking about a significant investment. It's obviously a lot less than it would be for a 1,000 megawatt uh, uh, nuclear power plant or a coal-fired power plant, but it's it's considerably more than it would be for a smaller wind farm or for uh, installing solar collectors. So you're kind of in this middle space uh, where you still need financing. You need certainly uh, private financing, and you've got to be able to raise money from investment bankers, as well as perhaps because of the, uh, the nature of any kind of new resource, it takes a while to be totally competitive with the low-cost fuels uh, that are generating some of the power we have right now, such as natural gas. Now, Bearing that in mind, uh, I guess uh, I've had a lot of different kinds of people on my show, and at one point I had a presidential candidate on the show, and he suggested that um, we should actually look into a project on the scale of the Manhattan Project uh, to try to uh, exploit these kinds of natural renewable resources, um, especially from the notion of that you know we could save so much money you know, on the, the different things that we do to try to secure oil or to clean it up when it gets messy or any number of other things that we're doing 
you know, some people would allude to the idea that our foreign policy could change if we didn't have to worry about oil in other countries. Um, and it, it, even if you just look at it from the perspective of a security, the security issue that if we were independent, you know, it almost seems like uh, you know, because people are concerned that, you know, that more and more wars are going to be fought over energy. Um, and do you think that, uh, you know, something like I said, you use the, the Manhattan, ex Manhattan Project as an example Scaled to modern day, obviously, because you're not talking about the same amount of money because of the differences in you know right. currency at the time, could possibly get the United States or even many other countries off the grid with geothermal. Well, I think you know as I as I grow older here and, and watch uh, our sort of enthusiasm for energy kind of go up and down over the years, it seems to me that we're reaching a point where. There should be a, a higher sense of urgency, perhaps, to, uh, to not necessarily adopt a Manhattan Project, but to be very deliberate in a multi-year sort of energy plan of some type. I gave the example of the Icelanders did this a long time ago. They deliberately went down that path. There are many developing countries that have also adopted, uh, I think, a, a, much, a much better strategy for the long term, countries such as Costa Rica, others in in Central America, uh, actually are very aggressive in, in thinking about their future uh, far into uh, along the same lines that you're talking about, energy security, uh, having a, a, an economic engine that can continue to run because it has, it has reliable and, and affordable energy available to it for the foreseeable future and not having to depend on the, the geopolitics of, of oil and gas, uh, et cetera. So maybe it's not the Manhattan Project, but but it's always struck me as being strange. The United States uh, takes on very and, and very rightfully so uh, initiatives towards, say, human health. Uh, if this was a a disease that we would fight, we would invest a very long-term strategy through whether it's the National Institute of Health or other other government agencies that we've got to tackle this. If it's AIDS or a form of cancer or polio whatever it might be, uh, that seems to immediately generate the sort of human interest. But having affordable energy should also take on that kind of uh, uh, feature, I would say, uh, and, and require a national sort of view that we've got to do this. This is not just about open market uh, exchange in a global market. We have to have affordable energy in this country, and it has to be reliable whether it's electricity or the heat we use to, for our homes or the energy that we need for industrial processes and the like. And it's strange that we haven't really gotten serious about this. This should not be, in my view, a political issue. It should be an issue that uh, is just part of our own, our own American and human welfare, but it doesn't seem to have happened. And in other countries, uh, there's, you know, I could point to many other developed countries where they talk about it a lot, but there's still, when all is said and done, they're still uh, importing a lot of oil, uh, importing natural gas, and relying, you know, on an awful lot of, uh, you know, the stability, let's say, of geopolitics uh, uh, to make sure that flow of energy continues into the future. Now, um, I mean, I don't want to get into big speculations, but we do know that the oil lobbies and some of the uh, um, renew like non-renewable resource lobbies seem to have a lot of power in swaying us away from those directions. Um, and I, I guess, you know, because I've had other scientists on have talked about the same problem that, you know, because there's a lot more money to be made in non-renewable resources in the long run, um, you, you know, we end up in a situation where 
these ideas are not really getting the timeshare that they really should have, particularly not in front of our politicians. Um, and it's it just it's kind of gotten to the point where, um, you know, some people speculate on the possibility of peak oil um, and that we might actually be getting to a point where the fossil fuel industry is going to become a thing of the past. I mean, it's inevitable we're going to run out of it eventually. Right. Um, and I guess it kind of comes down at that point to, you know, maybe we should be using the cheap energy that we have to build this infrastructure while we still can, rather than waiting for a crisis in that area. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I, I certainly agree with that. I think that's that's actually a, a very conservative view, if you if you want to look at it that way. That provides the sort of security we need to to guarantee our stability uh, into the future. But for some reason, it just doesn't seem to get the traction that I believe it should. Uh, and it's strange to me because it, it includes the electric grid, it includes our water supply systems, it includes uh, many other aspects of infrastructure. And if you have a, let's say we, we started to go down a path uh, that Iceland did and say we're when we start to rebuild our cities and our mid-sized cities as well as large cities, uh, we should start to think about district heating and combined heat and power in different ways than we have. Uh, and we should do this much more aggressively in, in new developments and subdivisions that are built. Certain countries are following this path. I think Sweden's an excellent example of that, where they literally extend a district heating network uh, in new subdivisions that are, uh, that are built, and it's a requirement to, to do it that way. Certainly that would be the case in, in Iceland. But we haven't really come to grips with it. You know, we've we've lived for so long with uh, with fairly low cost, affordable and accessible energy, uh, and, and gas is one good example of this. But certainly, oil for so long that you become addicted to it, and uh, it's very hard to make a change because you've been you've been embedded so much and invested so much in the infrastructure to supply that to you already that this requires different thinking. And uh, many argue that, you know, that the reason we might do this is because of, uh, of climate change issues and the like, but I think it's much more than that. I think this is a, a question of security and economic vitality and, and a, maintaining our, our quality of life and standard of living for future generations. And it's strange to me that, uh, that the political will, it doesn't seem to be there. Uh, most of our, our politicians, like other Americans, they have children and grandchildren, and you would think they'd be beginning to think more of this intergenerational sort of need, uh, but it doesn't seem to be happening as fast as I thought it would. Now, that's, um, you know, th there's lots of different stuff that my, my listeners, you've all been exposed to this, you know, different films and such that talk about the different ways that the politics of the situation complicate it, so I don't need to belabor that. But, um, but the issue, though, that... Uh, um, like just the idea that this is perhaps something that's so good that, you know, maybe at that point it's not as appealing as opposed to continuing the same things that are going on now. I mean, once you get a geothermal plant running, you kind of have a self-sustaining system that's producing electricity um, in a way that's not damaging anything. And at that point, it would be pretty hard to get somebody to purchase oil or to purchase coal when right. they've got this system hooked up. And it's it's just like a... You know, the, the auto industry purchasing the trolley systems so that people will buy more cars when they shut them down, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and so it's unfortunate that I, I just hope that eventually the people who are profit motivated in, in holding back mankind, you know, realize the disservice that they're doing to the people of the world. Now, 
soapboxing aside, um, let me say that uh, – now let me – actually, questions here from, from the chat room. We have, uh, are there any huge problems with the deep geothermal wells and the amount of water they need? Right. That's that's a great question. So uh, in many regions that we'd want to look at for potential use for geothermal, they, they would be obviously where demand was high, and they may not be as geologically favorable uh, as we certainly have in these higher-grade so-called hydrothermal systems. So one of the things that might be missing is the presence of water in the first place. So you have to be careful in how you're actually going to manage develop and manage such a system. And the concepts that are being pursued always involve recirculation of, of water. So you would you would start out with a with a reservoir which would be hot rock and it, it probably would have uh, a fair number of uh, natural fractures in it that were perhaps sealed over time, geologic time that need to be reopened. So they're usually reopened under hydraulic pressurization. And then you would create a multi-well system where there would be injection wells and production wells, and they'd be literally connected hydraulically. So you pump in cold water in the injection system. You'd flow that across a, a, a pressure gradient and recover that in the production system, and you'd continue to recycle that. So you'd remove heat at the surface and re-inject that cold water and, and close the loop. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not consuming some water, but by proper management, just the, the way in which we could manage a, a water system in general where we have a recharge that's being provided by the injection wells and a production that is being controlled by the rate of production, that we can put those in balance. And uh, many geothermal systems today have sufficient either natural recharge from what nature is providing to the aquifers to provide that uh, water into the hot regions of rock or by deliberate recharge, which is reinjection of the fluids. So very good question. Obviously, it's an issue and it has to be dealt with. That's one of the pieces of the, the puzzle, if you will, of uh, demonstrating uh, enhanced geothermal systems on, on the kind of scale that's needed. Now, could well, let's talk about the uh, the potential of geothermal given current state the current state of technology. Um, so I've heard people project that geothermal could power the entire planet twelve times over. Um, right. Do you think that's a fair statement? Well, I, I'm not sure that's uh, that's the right way to look at it. There, the, the starting point usually for any kind of discussion like this is the same way with other re resources, whether it's solar or wind or biomass you immediately look at what's called the resource base. And for geothermal, the resource base takes on slightly different definitions depending on who, who might be doing that. But it's generally thought of as the stored thermal energy that's in the upper crust of the earth, the, the part of the crust that we can get access to using today's technology. We drill very deep holes for searching for oil and gas, so that's not a problem to get down to the depths that would be sufficiently interesting. And the U.S. Geologic Survey and other uh, world organizations that are in this business typically pick 30,000 feet or 10 kilometers depth as what is the limiting condition right now for a, a geothermal resource. And if you literally, you know, look at the continents of the of the U.S., uh, the continent of the U.S. or the, or the continental landmass that we have in the world, uh, you can quickly calculate basically how much stored thermal energy is there. And the number is many, many more times 
than the annual consumption of primary energy that we have uh, either in the U.S. Or, or, or the whole world for that matter. But, and there's a big but here, is that that is not fully extractable, of course, and certainly not sustainable uh, at the kind of scale we might be talking about. Fortunately, we don't have to pull it all out at once. We can mine it over a longer period of time and try to do it in a way that will allow the the normal heat flow that's coming up through the earth to recharge those regions that have been locally depleted where we've mined the heat out of say one pocket we'll shut that down for a period of time and allow the earth itself to to recharge it with its uh, with the thermal conduction coming up from below so i think it's it's not fair to say it could provide all the power that we might need or all the energy, but it doesn't have to. Uh, what we really need to do is to bring it where it is now, which is about 11,000 megawatts of, of uh, electrical energy, a significant higher portion of thermal energy provided in a variety of countries around the world, to something that's significantly larger than that to make it a, a kind of international player. Uh, in, in the United States alone, we have... Uh, it's the largest producer of geothermal power uh, in the world. It's over 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 uh, three or four thousand megawatts or so. But our total generating capacity in the United States right now is about a million megawatts. If we include all of the coal, all our nuclear power plants, all the gas-fired power plants, and our hydro, and other smaller amounts of renewables, one million megawatts. So three or four thousand megawatts is a, a long way from a million, but if you ask the question differently, uh, what would it take to have geothermal be a bigger player? The, the answer that we came up with in a study I was part of a few years back was we felt you had to get to about 100,000 megawatts of capacity, not overnight, but over a period of maybe 50 years. That would make us, that would make geothermal essentially at the same level of all the nuclear power plants we have in the country, over 100 of these that are bigger, this would be more geothermal power plants for sure, but it would be producing about 10% of the capacity that we have in the country. That would be similar, similar initiatives are out there for wind and solar. So it doesn't have to do it all, but going from 4,000, let's say to 100,000 is a big step, which would require a lot of investment and the settling of many of these technical issues that were brought up in the last question. Water being one, where would you locate these? How would you develop and engineer these systems so they would be just as productive as these great systems we have in Iceland or, or New Zealand or out at the Geysers Field in California. That's a long answer, but it's it's a great question you, you've made here, Neil. No problem with the long answers. We like those here. Um, and you're getting a lot of positive feedback uh, from the listeners overall who are very happy to hear from you today. Um, now, uh, if you could pick the prime real estate on the planet, like if you were going to set up the five best geothermal plants, and you don't have to come up with five, um, on the planet, where would you put them, just given what you know now? Well, let's. Uh, the United States is what we've looked at more carefully. So let, let me reflect a little bit on this uh, large panel that I was involved with. In, in the, about 2005-2006 framework, we undertook a study for the Department of Energy that was asking the same sort of question that, that you're posing right now, that what would it take for geothermal to be a bigger part of the of the story, if you will, in terms of U.S. Uh, uh, primary energy being provided? And if we were going to start down that path from where we know now technically and where we have plants located around the country, what would we do to 
reduce the risk and to and to increase the level of of deployment so that we might get to that level and that level as i mentioned before was say 10% or so of our total generating capacity about 100,000 megawatts and our thinking was that you would certainly start early on in in a in a committed national program to look at the high grade areas just exactly the question you're asking go to areas where we have so-called high heat flow where the thermal gradients, the geothermal gradients are high. So that's mainly the American West. We'd probably look at regions that are on the margins of existing uh, geothermal plants that are in operation right now, but are not productive enough in terms of the fluid they produce uh, to be considered commercial and to try to develop these enhanced or engineered uh, geothermal concepts uh, in this mode. But our thinking was, and we picked five or six of these around the country, up in the far Pacific Northwest and the Southwest, some in the mid-continent, but we also picked some on the eastern side of the country, say east of the Mississippi, where the heat flows are lower, the temperature gradients are lower, you have to drill deeper, and where we don't have that experience yet of how to do it, because our thinking was that if you really want to to do something transformational, you have to start to invest in the technology and show people that you can actually do this. It might not be economic in the first generation. Uh, for goodness sake, we, the first solar uh, uh, photovoltaic system we built was certainly not economic in, in its early generation, and that would be true of these EGS power plants in low-grade regions. But our also feeling about this was that we don't have to just produce electric power. We could move to a system in, the, say, the northeast where we have cold, uh, a cold winter climate and use some of that geothermal energy to provide direct heat. And that changes the economics uh, tremendously. If you can shift from having to generate electricity, which produces a lot of waste heat, to essentially using most of that thermal energy uh, in a, for useful purpose, such as heating buildings. So it's, it's a tough, tough area. So I'd say look at, the, look at the American West first, where we have high gradients, don't have to drill as deep, near where we know the geology very well and know what, how a natural geothermal system operates, and then begin to migrate sort of in the opposite direction we, we settled America from from west to east rather than from east to west uh, with our technology. And the, the program we laid out in this study was a fairly deliberate 15-year program of research and demonstration. And interestingly enough, uh, and I think a lot of people questioned this when we first came out with the report, this is not as costly as you might think either because the scale of a geothermal demonstration is relatively small. It's not like building a big clean coal plant or dealing with a a new generation of a nuclear power or something like that, which would be multiple billions of dollars to uh, to be able to demonstrate it at the kind of scale that would convince people that this is really going to work. Geothermal power plants are smaller, and so you could do several of these demonstrations over that period of time for the same kind of investment it would take to do one clean coal plant uh, in, in sort of today's economy. And that that's attractive, I would think, in a, in a country that has to be looking at options, uh, and we, we haven't unfortunately gone down that path uh, yet. Uh, it would be nice if we, uh, again, were, there was a little bit more of a sense of urgency in general, not just for geothermal, but for other renewables right now, and I hope that will change, but uh, it depends a lot on, uh, I think, what happens in the, in the political framework right now. Well, um, 
this is all this has all been great information. Uh, there is one thing that I you know I remember also came up during your lecture, and you know we've been talking a lot of pros. What are the concerns about geothermal that we have to tackle? Well, I think a couple of the big ones, one was brought up already, was the issue of water. Uh, if we are operating in parts of the American West where water is a very precious commodity, we're going to have to uh, certainly account for uh, uh, the water we're going to need to, to create an operational reservoir and manage it very well. Uh, we can't be consuming large amounts of water. Uh, by permeating it out into the into these formations of depth, we're going to have to hydraulically sort of control that water loss uh, so that we can make them sustainable. The other issue, uh, like any other kind of development, uh, when you drill holes and, and you put in infrastructure, uh, it, it's obviously disruptive locally where you might do this. So people would have to become a little more accustomed to, uh, if, if it's in a very remote region, to having a few drill rigs around for a while. Uh, fortunately, uh, you know, we have uh, a long history of, of uh, an experience with drilling around the country, so it's not like it's totally foreign technology, but it's different uh, than, than it would be for, for oil and gas because we're not talking about a depletable resource now. We're actually putting in something that would be a permanent part of the infrastructure for long periods of time, as they have done in, in Iceland, where it would provide heat and power, for example. But I think the, the biggest sort of uh, unknown out there in the part of many people's mind uh, has to do with what, what happens geologically when you go into these systems and inject fluids. Certainly, uh, in most active geothermal areas that we have around the world, they're seismically active. Uh, that's one of the reasons why they have uh, geothermal heat uh, so close to the surface is they're usually near or adjacent to uh, uh, regions where we have tectonic uh, plate boundaries, such as Iceland. The, the, the island of Iceland, if you will, is literally cut in half by, by a tectonic plate uh, intersection. Uh, there are other areas that are volcanic, uh, where recent volcanic activities, such as in, in uh, northern Italy, uh, where you expect to see this, the regional seismicity uh, to be fairly high. So there is a concern uh, that when you started to run a geothermal system that you might have to uh, worry about higher levels of induced seismicity. Now, uh, and, and certainly that, that would have to be monitored and measured carefully in, in any kind of development that went on. Fortunately, uh, because geothermal is so old in a sense, uh, having 100 years of operating experience, uh, and most of those plants uh, have operated uh, without uh, any concern about closing, shutting them down because of, of seismic, uh, higher levels of seismicity, because they're already in reasonable areas of high seismicity. But it's not to the point where it's dangerous. We're not talking about magnitudes of, of uh, induced seismicity that are going to cause uh, human death or massive property dis disruption, they're going to be just kind of the natural part of the uh, environment. So that is a concern for sure. But it, every, every, uh, every element, I think, of when we start to change our energy system brings along with it some natural impacts and concerns that have to be dealt with. And it's the trade-offs, I think, that we should be thinking here. It's not necessarily, is this better than anything, or what are we trading it off against? That's actually a really good point, and I was, that's what was going through my head as you were saying that. Um, you know, we can do things to deal with seismic activity, and we already do in areas that, you know, where it's, where it's prevalent. 
Um, and I'll trade some more, you know, some more earthquakes for uh, in exchange for, say, what happened to Japan and the radioactivity there. Right. Right. You know, right. or the damage of hydraulic fracking, making people's water flammable, exactly. or uh, the damage that's done to the local areas when coal mining goes on. You know, for people who are not aware of this, because um, it's it's kind of new actually to me, even as it's not talked about much, but uh, there's a documentary called Burning Our Future Coal, uh, which does a really good job of explaining just how terrible that can be to a local ecology. Um, so, it's, you know, like you said, the trade-offs, you know, um, the question at that point becomes, you know, there's going to be seismic activity in these places anyway. We can build buildings to, to deal with that. Yeah. But the kinds of crap that's going to go on when we screw up, you know, like uh, Chernobyl or Fukushima, I think it was, you know, the kind of damage from that doesn't go away for hundreds of thousands of years. Right. I, I think, you know, again, it's we're not trying to necessarily pick winners or losers completely sure. because we'll obviously learn a lot uh, by deploying these things. So certainly the deployment of, of large-scale wind is going to have impacts that we haven't quite anticipated yet. We have to learn how to, how to mitigate that and live with it. Uh, certainly we've improved our ability to to clean up coal to a certain point of view, but we still have to deal with carbon dioxide and 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 mining the top mountain tops and dealing with some of the risks associated with with uh, mining some of these resources in general, the human risk, the human health, and everything else. But I don't think typically the the citizens uh, really think about these trade-offs. They they imagine that you know there is some ultimate clean resource out there that's not going to have any impacts at all and. And I think that's just not correct. I think all of this is about engineering the system the best we can, dealing with the, the impacts and mitigating those to the point that we can have a better system than we have now. And geothermal should be a part of that story. And uh, I, I'm afraid that uh, it still isn't recognized as much as it should be. Uh, and I'm hoping that that will change in time. But, uh, you know, a, a large national effort, uh, could help increase the visibility of that. Well, that's excellent. Um, now, I guess at this point, uh, I would like people to kind of also be able to get an opportunity to see more of your work. Um, have you written any books? Have you written any papers or anything that people could read to get more information? Sure. There's, uh, and these aren't solely authored by me at all, but there's there's been a, a number of reports and books that I think address this question. Um, the one I mentioned uh, uh, a few minutes ago had to do with the study that was while I was at MIT and led by a, a group of 18 of us that we put our report called the future of geothermal energy. It's DOE uh, supported effort, but I think it, it captures a lot of what I was talking about today. But since that time, uh, there have been other groups that have looked at this. Uh, the uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change uh, recently finished us a report on renewable energy. This is not about climate change. It's more about what we're going to do about it in terms of changing our energy system. And I was involved with that as, as the U.S. representative on that panel. That report's interesting because it uh, it captures sort of the global impact and, and tries to give pro projections of what could happen uh, if geothermal became a bigger player, both for providing electricity and direct heat. So I'd urge you to to look at that. These are all available on the web. Uh, I can uh, get you the links for them, and they would be the most successful. We've published a few books uh, about sustainable energy. There's a new 
edition that MIT Press will be releasing in the next few months that covers a large number of, of energy systems that people, your readers or listeners might be interested in reading. Uh, and that'll be available shortly too. Excellent. Well, yeah, we can definitely get that. You, I'll have you email it to me and then I'll share it with the listeners in a later broadcast. Um, now, uh, I've got another question here. Um, are there any potential barriers or issues with tapping into and utilizing the Earth's thermal energy? Could human intervention over longer periods potentially alter anything geologically? Well, uh, th that's another great question, and, and certainly I look back on our, on our human experience so far with geothermal because we have some pretty old geothermal fields that have been literally producing power for a century or so, or at least over a half a century. And there are a few issues. Clearly, water management is one. You know, you have to make sure that the recharge into these systems is, is sufficient so they could be sustainable. We learned that in the geysers field in Northern California uh, many years ago, and we're using now, uh, believe it or not, the reinjection of, uh, of treated sewage water that's being injected back into the system to help recharge it. So you can think of that as a uh, ultimate sort of win-win where you've cleaned up some environmental damage by essentially using some of that water uh, to recharge a natural system, such as this geysers field. But uh, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, the way in which we're altering the earth uh, is in a very, very uh, sort of um, gradual fashion. You know, you're removing heat, but the very fact that it's hard to get that heat out of the ground requires you to look at a larger area that's far away from you. You know, we're not talking about something shallow. Uh, this is not at all uh, similar to the issues that are being associated now with aquifer contamination and things like that. We're very deep in the earth. Where the gradients are low, we'd be uh, at depths that would be well in excess of, of 10,000 feet. So it's not a question of that kind of contamination, but there are issues. We talked about seismicity, and that would have to be looked at over, over a period of time. You'd want to manage water. You don't want to pump water in mindlessly for many, many years and, and create a, a situation that could be bad, uh, both economically as well as, as from a seismic point of view. But those to me is, is sort of you're going to learn as you do it. We have a lot of experience so far with existing geothermal uh, systems that is very encouraging. And I don't think there are any real showstoppers, so to speak, Neil, that you know we ought to be worried about. I think we have to do careful management, careful monitoring as you would with any new energy uh, system. And uh, you know, keep the public informed as to as to what's happening. So uh, these are controllable systems, I guess, is what I'm getting at. That it's not like producing, uh, you know, certain types of waste forms that have to be dealt with for the rest of time. We're we're essentially using the heat in the earth in a rechargeable way, which is fundamentally different than some of our extractive technologies that we have right now. Excellent, excellent. Now. Um, I guess uh, taking all of this into account, um, another thing that is not frequently really spoken about when people are discussing our energy needs is that we should be designing what we do in the first place to be more energy efficient, which helps a lot. I mean, when you're getting a house off the grid, you go out of your way to make sure that the amount of power that it needs is lowered just by the design of the house itself, whether or not, you know, I mean, for example, uh, you know, Carlton Brown, a fellow that I uh, studied a little bit about in an episode of uh, Big Ideas for a Small Planet, he builds uh, sustainable 
um, cradle to cradle design, you know, so you could to fully recycle um, apartment buildings in Harlem, New York. And he uses a geothermal, geothermal heat pump system to alleviate the energy costs within the building. You know, so and then the building itself, all the apartments there are designed so that, you know, that they're, they're you know, they're well insulated, you know, uh, they make use of natural light. So you're using less electricity in general. Um, and also just the fact that a great deal of our energy costs would be eliminated, not just from the, the generation of geothermal energy itself, but also just from using geothermal to deal with a lot of the heating and cooling um, issues that go into our energy consumption would go away not by geothermal producing electricity, but by uh, geothermal pumps being used to make it so that it just doesn't cost anywhere near as much to heat and cool your living spaces in the first place. Uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely, right. Let, let me, yeah, and I, I'm actually in the process right now of, of attempting to build a, a zero net energy house here in Ithaca, and uh, we're going to use all the resources we can, certainly geothermal ground source heat pumps, solar thermal, solar photovoltaics, and, and a very well insulated, and uh, to, the, to the extent I can, uh, certainly uh, low-intensity lighting, using a lot of natural lighting, all the attributes you're talking about. So it's an integrated system in a way. But in simple terms, if we just compare, for instance, using geothermal for heat, not so in a direct-use kind of manner that I spoke of, versus producing electricity with it, imagine that we take in 100 units and whatever unit system you want to work in, of thermal energy out of the ground in the form of hot water or steam, if we have to convert that to electricity, typically we lose about 90% of that <clears throat> as waste heat. So we get 10 units of electricity out of, the, out of that geothermal fluid. If we were to use that directly for heat, we would get roughly 90% of that for in a well-designed heat distribution system. So instead of getting just 10, we get 90. We've increased the efficiency by a factor of nine. The example that you've given for geothermal heat pumps greatly increases the efficiency of electricity use uh, in a heat pump system, comparing a ground source geothermal heat pump with an air-to-air -air conventional heat pump system. We increase the efficiency enormously, you know, by over a factor of four or so. So that's definitely the direction to go. And uh, again, it, it just, the sense of this is that we should be doing this on a larger scale. It shouldn't just be a few uh, people who are already believers. We should be doing this more systematically, I think, and deliberately in, in the American cities, in large subdivision build-outs and, and the like. And, and that, that would take a change in policy and social attitude. Absolutely. You know, I want to thank you again for being on. Uh, are you still teaching? Yes. Yes, I have a great, uh, very lucky here to be uh, both at MIT and Cornell to be blessed by having an uh, enormous amount of uh, enthusiastic and passionate students uh, that are interested in this. And they're the ones that are going to have to solve this long after I'm gone. So we want to make sure that they have everything, all the tools they need. That's excellent. I mean, I've, I frequently get questions from people when I when I have professors on. You know, where can I go learn from this person? So, um, and I got a couple of them right now. So, um, you're teaching at Cornell, and then I'm at MIT. So, if people want to learn more about this, because I mean, it's a lot of people, particularly the socially conscious people who listen to my radio show, are trying to pick careers that are about making the world, you know, heal rather than hurting it. Right. So, right. 
Um, and I guess that would be, you know, um, once again, Jeff, uh, thanks for being on today. And, um, you know, if uh, anything ever comes up, any kind of new news or whatever, please let me know. Uh, a lot of my listeners are focused on this issue and would love to hear more from, you know, as far as like, you know, any new developments or any new projects that come up. Sure. We'll, we'll do. Thanks again for the opportunity. Appreciated it. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon, I'm sure. But let, please let me know about the websites. I'll make sure that your, your listeners can get access to those reports. All right. Thank you very much. Um, and take care. Yep. Goodbye now. Yep. All right, folks, that was Jeffrey Tester, Ph.D. from MIT and Cornell University, an expert on geothermal. Uh, you guys asked me about more technology shows, so there you have it. Um, I'm working on getting even more technology shows as time goes on. Uh, but I, I, actually, I have a solar power uh, connection that I'm going to be working on next. Um, and if you guys have any other requests for show types, uh, you guys really saved my bacon, to be brutally honest. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of worked my butt off in the last few months. Um, I hope that you guys have appreciated the work that I've been doing, especially now that I'm, I'm actually getting out in the field and recording interviews on site, uh, recording video on site. Um, so I'm hoping that you guys are enjoying the work that I've been doing, and I do need feedback about that because I've been uh, I've been posting links, uh, more specifically uploading uh, things to YouTube and to the Blog Talk Radio account that you do not get emails about. So just being subscribed enough is not there. Like when I when I upload a show directly, you will not get an email about it. You'll have to actually go to the website and look it up. So, um, or even just the, more specifically the blog talk, because I don't even think I've managed to put all these in the archives yet. So, um, but please do me a favor, you know, go back and listen to conversations from Occupy Michigan. I'm sorry, Occupy Detroit, the conversations from the Occupy Michigan Summit, uh, conversations from Occupy Lansing. Check out my YouTube channel, because I've been loading that with new stuff. It's kind of a new feature for what I do for you guys here at B-Radio. Um, that, that name of that is vradio.org, like as in literally spelled out vradio.org with no hyphen, and that's the YouTube channel. You can also go to my website, v-radio.org, um, and there you can find in the links section a link to my YouTube channel and a link to a lot of other uh, good stuff, including different uh, people that you've seen here on the show, um, including Professor Roger Stahl, uh, Scott, different websites and like you know, obviously YouTube channels for people like Storm Clouds Gathering. Um, you know, his name is Aaron, Spiritual Entertainer, Danny Shine, Charlie Veach, The Love Police. Uh, a lot of good information that you guys can find there. So if you go to v dash or v hyphen radio dot org, click link, you will find this stuff there. Um, and uh, V Radio is only down to like the last hundred dollars for donations, and I could use them. If you folks are, you know, liking what you're hearing so far, not only should you give me feedback, um, if you guys can help out with the last of this month's uh, um, expenses, I would really appreciate it. So thanks again to everybody listening, and I'll leave you with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.